Hi, my name's Tara Humphrey and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast, where I will be sharing interviews and insights from the field of healthcare. The Business of Healthcare podcast is brought to you by THC Primary Care, where we provide operations and project management to primary care networks. If you are a clinical director or a practice manager and your to-do list is growing by the minute and you could do with an extra pair of hands to support you to roll out your network-based contracts and projects, I would love to help you. We also provide consultancy and coaching advice to healthcare business owners and clinical leads looking to take the next step in their career or their business. Come and check us out at www.thcprimarycare.co.uk. Hi and welcome back to the Business of Healthcare podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. So on this episode of the podcast, I am interviewing Claire Vale. Claire is the Managing Director at Sign Solutions, which is an organisation that enables communication between deaf and hearing people. Their largest section of clients is with the NHS. They offer face-to-face interpreting, video interpretation, training, support and advice basic sign language translation and they also support expert witness reports and DBS renewals. Claire is an accountant by background and moved into the managing director role and she shares with us her journey and Claire shares with us how that happened. She gave us a bit of a lesson and behind the scenes of how to write successful NHS tenders. She talks about keeping up with the competition, how her leadership style changed as the organisation grew and especially due to COVID and how in communication has increased and there's a feeling that it feels better than it did before everybody started working remotely. And she also talks about how they have become and positioned themselves as a bit of a one-stop shop and how they've built ancillary offerings around their core service. I really, really enjoyed it. And at the end, again, I say this all the time, I've done an MBA and I feel like this podcast is the perfect compliment. This podcast teaches you and you get to hear the information, the knowledge and experience that your MBA doesn't give you. Enjoy and I would love it if you share and I'll see you in the next episode. Hi, Claire. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Business of Healthcare podcast. How are you doing? All right. Thank you. We've just had a few tech issues. <laughs> just a few, but we're, we're, in, we're in there now. We're in now. We're on now. It would be great. Could you share with our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do today? Yeah, so I'm Claire Vale. I'm the Managing Director of a company called Sign Solutions. We're based in Birmingham, as you can probably tell by the accent. <laughs> Um, But we kind of cover the whole of the UK, providing interpretation, translation and training to enable deaf um, and hearing people to communicate and reduce the barriers to accessing products, services, healthcare and work. I've been the MD um, for over 10 years now. Um, So we started there as 
the accountant because that's what I do that's what my qualification is and then kind of worked my way up and I've been running it now for about 10 years. Is that do you think to go from accountant to MD was that quite a leap? Well I think finance is probably the best background for a lot of a lot of management roles. Um, I think if you've got a good idea and a good grasp of the numbers and you can you know be a people person and quite process driven I guess if you're going to manage the company then I, I kind of as an MD, you dip your hands into absolutely everything in every department. You're not an expert in everything. But I think that having a handle on the numbers means that the if that's OK, you've got time to sort out everything else. <laughs> and was it you that drove that career tra- trajectory or was it your, I suppose, the owners and the founders of the organisation? Did they keep drawing you into things? Like, At what point did you think... I could run this. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess when I started, obviously, I started in finance and then was quite quickly promoted to sort of head of head of the finance team. And then in, was involved in a lot of the management meetings with the different board members and different members of different departments. And I quickly realised that actually accountancy is very much a problem solving <laughs> qualification and a lot of the things that came out of those meetings I realized I had a good answer for or a good process I could put in place and as as time sort of evolved I got more and more involved in in the process more and more involved in management of different departments from a numbers perspective but also from a sort of process or or operational perspective I like to understand things from operational and then kind of strategy because I think that's the best way to kind of lead. Um, so I think for me, understanding the whole business from sort of the bottom up has enabled me to understand how to grow it um, and to run it a bit a bit more reflect- effectively. So I think I was kind of recognised as having problem solving skills and then, yeah, just kind of worked my way up. And then did you replace yourself? Yes, I replaced myself um, with a team, actually. So I replaced myself with a finance manager and account and then kind of two accounts assistants. And then we had investment um, in the company in January 19 to grow the company. And with that came a, a massive growth in, in staff. So we moved from around 17 employees up to we are 30 now. So that involved creating new departments. So we never had a sales or marketing team before. We have now. We've got two business development managers and marketing and then kind of an operational team to deal with our video interpreting service and to grow that. So, yeah, so it's kind of, um, yeah, it's been it's been a bit a bit of a, a quick growth journey. But I, I, I think I've done a lot of work um, on making and um, on joining groups where many directors kind of get together on a monthly basis and we look at our business and we kind of prime it for growth and we put processes in place to make sure that you know whatever life throws at us you can deal with it and covid was no different we carried on as normal providing all our services and our clients we were there for our clients all the time it was no different for them so i think you've got to have those foundations in place to grow and then obviously you're more successful attracting investment then because you are structured and ready to ready to launch 
So how big is your your market or the market? Yeah, okay. So it's a really hard thing to grasp because there are so many companies that would benefit from our services, but potentially don't always come into contact with a deaf person. So we initially used to provide mostly services to the NHS. So obviously every deaf person will end up having an appointment with a GP or or a clinician at some point. So that's kind of where our services sort of started there and legal. So obviously court hearings and family proceedings, et cetera, and family court service. And then that extended into sort of police and education. So supporting deaf students in, in education. But then as we've launched the video interpreting service back in 2014, we realised that any organisation with a phone number or with a customer facing reception needs to be accessible, really. So if they're not, they're missing out on the customers that are in the deaf community. They're missing out on you know, effectively diverse talent within deaf, in the deaf community and recruiting that talent. So our, our customers now are so wide ranging. We have telecoms companies, utility companies, charities, banks, councils, colleges, universities, anywhere you can possibly think that you would go, a deaf person would also go. And so we try and reduce the barriers to accessing those products and services. And I guess the biggest users of our video interpreting service are probably the healthcare sector and our telecom sector. So obviously every deaf person has a mobile phone and they all have broadband, TV, etc. So they need to contact those companies in BSL. So we enable that via a link on their website. So I guess they're, they're our biggest users. But yeah, really, our market is any anyone and everyone that wants to access, you know, or provide services to a deaf person. So you said you mentioned you got the investment at 2019. At what point did you and the team say, our core is the NHS initially, but these people are people and they use lots of services. And these, they, you also says your core market is that deaf person and you're following them around and making sure that they, whatever services they go to, whatever services they need, they can use them. Um, at what point did you say we can broaden this out? Yeah, so I think when initially our business was just face to face, obviously that 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 doesn't involve phoning any number. That just involves somebody turning up to an appointment or a court court hearing or a police station. But when we implemented video, we realised that actually what we were enabling is remote contact with any organisation. And so our one of our first clients was Virgin Media. So Virgin Media set up the service, they've had it ever since. And then we realised, obviously, from the demand for them, that there was the opportunity to expand into further telecoms. And actually, that came without us initiating it. It came from the fact that, you know, if one competitor has got the service and is is accessible to that community, it's not just the deaf person that will go to them. It's actually their friends and family as well. So so it, it makes commercial sense to make sure that you are keeping up with the competition. So so I guess that's how we initially looked at it, kind of a demand-led from the telecom side. But then we've looked at loads and loads of different sectors since then. So obviously, you know, you all need to phone your utility company or you all need to, um, you know, you cancel or so it so some of the some of the demand comes from tenders. So people recognizing the services that are available and writing a tender for them, which we apply for. 
or it comes from seeing what their competitors are doing, kind of making sure they're keeping up, or it just comes from um, deaf people contact us on a daily basis saying, I need to contact this organisation, but they're not accessible. Can you contact them on my behalf and see if we can set up the service? So a lot of it is user service user-led as well. So we try and obviously... Yeah, follow them, break down those barriers to employment or accessing services and try and put those solutions in place. You mentioned keeping up. So your clients like to keep up with the competition. How do you keep up with your competition? Yeah, so obviously our market is quite niche. <laughs> there are thousands of spoken language interpreting agencies. There aren't as many what we call non-spoken. So non-spoken would be, you know, sign language or other types of communication support. So we compete in two different ways. So we compete in a, we compete against the spoken language agencies because they offer our services as as an add-on to their service, as a managed service lot. And we also compete with video-only interpretation providers. There's another two video-only interpretation providers. But the market is so big that there is room for all of us. And we all offer slightly different um, services. With us, we find it's useful that we offer everything. So we're a bit of a one-stop shop, really. So a client will come to us and say, oh, well, I'd like to implement video interpreting. But then also I'd like to train people in BSL so they can greet customers when they come in or so they feel comfortable answering the video calls, which which they answer via the phone, not via video. But just just kind of, and then they'll say to us, oh, actually, we've got some policies or some, some videos we want to make accessible in BSL. So having not just video and having all those ancillary offerings means that we can we can be quite dynamic and offer quite a hybrid mix of, of support for deaf employees or, or deaf patients um, so that, that, that those customers and those, those clinicians can offer the same to their patients to give them the choice. Obviously, everybody's moving now into this hybrid world yeah. and video doesn't suit everything. Face to face doesn't suit everything. But I think we all appreciate this mix of choice, don't we? Yeah. Um, of, of different ways in which we can access. And why not, why not um, a deaf person be able to phone an organisation rather than having to arrange an interpreter and go and see them? Mm-hmm. No, it, it's... Um, we're just trying to create um, you know, equality and parity. Really. So you mentioned that you win some of your business through tenders. And I think we had quite a long conversation before about it. And I I don't know if I should admit this, but I suppose I, I quite early on decided I'm not going to do that. <laughs> and I probably miss out on loads. Talk us through your approach to filling in your tenders and what and how you get on the framework and who writes them and how long it takes yeah so I think if you talk to anybody that does public sector tendering their first reaction will be Um, (laughs) because because they are they are not just little quick quotes they're not um you know like the private sector do a quick quote or an an rfp They're, they're not like that they are very very long and it's frustrating sometimes for suppliers that you write um, a bid for a framework and there are lots of organizations that can buy from that framework but they choose to do their own tender so you effectively answer all the same questions again but just in their format or in 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 the way they they ask them so 
When I first got into the world of public sector tendering, it was a necessity really because the volumes of sort of interpretation that goes through healthcare and public sector is significant. So it's kind of tendered under OGU. So the tenders come out on public or government portals, which are often free, or, or I use um, bidstats.co.uk um, where you can search the type of tenders. And that's really good. They organise them all in awards as well and dates. Um, I then look for things that are what we can provide. So interpretation, translation, deaf awareness training, BSL, interpreting, video. Um, and then I register interest and then I look at the terms and conditions that are offered and if they match what, what we need to, to match in our industry and pay our interpreters. I'll challenge them if they don't because they want 100% fulfilment. But if they don't offer the terms, that's not going to happen. How do you challenge them? Okay, so you challenge them, reviewing the terms, and then you put in a clarification question. You basically say the terms and conditions that are offered within this framework or this tender do not align with our industry. If you wish to have specialist, you know, BSL provider and you wish to have the high quality that you want from your interpretation, you need to meet the industry standard terms. And so they will either change them and reissue the specification or they'll say no and, and we won't apply so then after that stage they, they used to do this thing called a pre-qualification questionnaire that's now changed to more of a selection questionnaire now so you fill in that and if you pass that you get invited to the tender so you get an ITT invitation to tender that's normally a longer document including all their technical and quality questions as well as pricing who fills that out? Mostly me. Um, so when I, I do outsource some of it, but a lot of it I like to keep in-house. Um, we're quite successful. We probably win about 70% of what we apply for. What tendering has learnt me over the years is that it's been good because it's guided us with the accreditations that really and the processes you should have in place as an organisation. So when we initially started tendering, it was asking for ISO or health and safety policies or modern safety policies or and, and, and environmental policies. And initially, you don't always have all of those things. Yeah. So it guides you into what you really should have in place for the public sector because they're always more highly regulated. And that stood us in good stead with the private sector. So then going forward, whenever we have a tender, do you have this? Do you have this? Do you have this? And now, rather than writing a thousand words on what I'm going to do about this, I just tick a box to say, yes, I do have it. Here's my certificate. And it, it's been good because it's meant that our clients all receive the same quality of service. We continually improve it. It's delivered securely. Um, and so, yes, yeah, so I think public sector tendering in that way it might be a lots of hoops to jump through but actually it's a good structure for your business and once you've done it it's quite easy then to to go through and apply do you think it is transparent truly i think a lot of tenders you will see come out are sometimes written for the incumbent provider <laughs> Or um, they do they don't do much engagement um, prior to the tender coming out, and this is why people like us challenge the terms because they may have asked um, I don't know, somebody that's not even from a specialist agency to to kind of ask for some research, and then when it comes out, it's completely not what the industry is. So I try and educate 
organisations before they go out to tender as to what the industry has to offer. And I think that's kind of why a lot I'm seeing a lot more now sort of requests for information prior to a tender coming out. So they'll go out to market, they'll ask everybody, what can you provide currently? What innovations have you got? And they pick and choose what they'd like. And then they bring those terms and those innovations and those requirements into then tender. So I think the ones that do that are quite transparent. The ones that come out and you can clearly see they're written, they've got terms in it that you can't you can't meet because it's written for the incumbent. I don't think it was that fair. But but yeah, I'd, I'd say transparency is there. But yeah, it just depends on the process they've taken to get to the tender process. You mentioned you sit on a business group to support your business foundations. What industry groups do you sit on to help educate and keep up to date with uh, the developments in your field? Various. So we we partner with a lot of organisations. So we've got partners that that help with the video conferencing side. So I keep up with developments in video conferencing across different platforms. We've got partners regarding accessibility and inclusion. So we make sure that obviously our, our job adverts or our offerings are accessible. Then within our industry, we kind of there's been a lot of engagement recently on a, on a new framework called the Crown Commercial Services Framework. And so that's probably one of the only frameworks where all the suppliers have kind of attended and contributed to the framework to make sure that it's fit for purpose for the suppliers, but also for the, for the organisations buying from it. And it, it, the last um, framework that came out from them was successful. And this one looks to be following in the same footsteps. So we all kind of liaise within our industry to make sure that the terms do increase and that it's not they're not eroded because people leave the profession then and then there's less, less availability, mm-hmm. therefore less access. So it all compounds on it itself. But then regarding having a wider view, um, so the director board that I'm on, it's called Smart, Smart Boards. It's delivered by BizSmart. And it's a group of directors, all from different industries, that meet together on a monthly basis. And we discuss issues, problems, solutions. And we all forward plan for the next quarter. We all hold each other accountable to those plans. So if, you, if you're if you an MD, finding time to sit down and plan and be strategic is, is important because it means that everybody in that organisation can follow your direction rather than everyone running around like headless chickens <laughs> and not knowing what to do next. So when I first joined that group, I thought they're not going to have any ideas or solutions for me because I'm completely different industry to them. But what I found is that actually it doesn't matter what industry you're in, you all have the same operational, sales, marketing, resource problems. And I always like the quickest solution to a problem. And rather than doing running off in all different directions as separate MDs doing our own research, we just use each other's resources and knowledge to be able to kind of get the problem sorted or, or you know, or progress the product or, or create the application um, as fast as possible, really. So that's kind of like my field of knowledge if you like. Yeah I definitely agree we had a conversation where I'd call that a mastermind so I've got two I've got one primary care based one and then I've got one international one and you're exactly right 
I'm working with people or working alongside people all over the world. I've never, I know I have met them. I've met them once, but we don't even talk in real time. We talk on an app called Voxer and business is business. It just is. It's really, we all have the same issues around staffing, around sales, around operations and growing and then you grow and then you think, do I want to grow like this? (laughs) And all of that stuff. So I totally agree. There'll be lots of leaders listening to this podcast and sometimes it's helpful to share, you know, like a time when you've either made a mistake or where something's really gone wrong and you have doubted yourself. Because I think we all have that and we might tell our closest friend, but we don't really, because we don't want to look stupid, you know, like publicly. But it is so helpful because we all face this in our careers. It's, it's normal and natural. Hmm. I think, um, yeah, being an MD is a scary thing. I always say to people, you never know what's going to drop into that inbox that you those you don't know what's coming day in, day out, do you? You can plan your day, but it never, ever goes to plan. I think often I've had stuff drop in and I think, what, what do they want me to do? What, what is that? So my first port of call will be Google, <laughs> understand what actually you're asking me. Second port of call will be to find somebody in my network that might know something about it or be able to help me. I'm quite well connected on LinkedIn and I find LinkedIn amazing for making connections and referrals. I, you know, I love the fact that, you know, I can just someone will come to me with a problem or say, oh, do you know anyone that does? And I'll go, yes and point them in that direction and people point people in my direction and I think I think that community and the fact that there is so many people now that I'm connected with for different things it really really does make you feel not so alone and obviously then same as you I have mentors and I have I have my board of directors so I will then ping an email out saying anyone come across this and I get an email back within probably a few minutes saying yeah I have here's a link this guy can help um, so I feel supported in that way. Also, obviously, I've got, um, you know, the investors as well that um, are there um, to support us through the, the growth journey. And they obviously lot, got lots of connections as well. But I think often, yeah, I will come across stuff and I think oh, I don't really know how to do this. But you are the end. The, the book stops with you, doesn't it? So if something comes into another department and they don't know how to deal with it, it comes to me and I will often deal with it. And I think when, whenever you set policies and procedures in place, I try and be really prepared for every eventuality. And then when something does happen, I've got something to follow or, or some guidance to follow. But yeah, I think that's kind of what I was mentioned before about the public sector tendering. They'll ask me for things and, I think, and then I'll go and investigate. I'll go and get it. I'll get a process in place. I'll communicate it to everybody. So next time that happens, we are ready. And I think one of the things that I did prior to COVID was move everything online. We've been online for delivering services and working. And I, I did that well before COVID. And it was really housing, you know, good stead when COVID hit, because it was literally take your laptop, go home. You can work securely. And everyone did for the next, you know, no disruptions. So have you had any periods where you've thought, I don't know if I want to do this anymore? <laughs> yes, yes. Um, loads of times I think peaks and troughs isn't it I think you get to this point where you and you do feel that it's like that imposter syndrome isn't it and when you're running a company and, and everything is on you you people look to you to be the expert in absolutely everything and you're not 
and you kind of think to yourself and question to yourself, am I, am I the best person for this role? But I think the results speak for themselves. The contract retention speaks for itself. The happiness of your team speaks for itself. And I, th- and I just think, you know, as you trundle along in this role, it is a bit of a wild journey. But actually, the, the things you learn along the way, I just feel like I'm constantly bolstering myself with more and more armour as the weeks and the months go on. So I feel more, more confident as a person, more, more, more able to problem solve, more able to deliver. But yeah, I do have days when I just go, oh my God. But yeah, that's not every day. And to be honest, I thrive. Like I'd be bored, I think, if I didn't have the challenge. I do like the challenge of not knowing what's going to drop in that inbox next. Just, I just want to emphasise, I think, for anybody listening to this and you have those moments I've written down, I think, yeah, the results speak for themselves. And yeah, you don't have to get it right all the time. But actually, if you look at your track record, you're doing all right. So we can't have a podcast at the moment without talking about the pandemic. <laughs> so you mentioned you've moved to delivering services virtually, you've got video consultations. What has been the impact of COVID on your clients? Yeah, so our our clients pre-pandemic, we've always had video interpreting, but a lot of the public sector was a little bit scared about the security of video and oh no, we, we, we know we want to stick with what we know, even though the innovation's there. So we were trying to kind of improve contracts by getting hybrid models set up before the pandemic. It wasn't, so it affected them quite badly for those that hadn't gone with the times. They literally had, oh dear, we're going online and how do we do that? But luckily, because we already had everything in place, we just said, you just need to do this, follow this guide. And they're like, is that it? And I'm like, yeah, that's why we've been telling you for the last six years to set that up. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, and guess what? You can bring interpreters into any platform you wish. You know, if you want to use Attend Anywhere, use that. If you want to use Starleaf, use that. So then quite quickly, they realised, and everybody got very comfortable, didn't they? The world got comfortable with video. And that has helped our business massively because before we were driving up and down the country for a one hour contract meeting, our clients are as far north as Scotland down to Plymouth. So we do travel a lot. I think I think being prepared for being online, so having your VoIP phones and everything in the cloud and all your VPN set up, that, that was great for us because we literally just picked our laptops up and went home. And the clients don't know any different. You know, your calls are rooted around like you're all sitting next door to each other. Um, but I think for our clients, it was for some of them, not all of them, because some of them weren't impacted at all if they had video, but for some of them that were scared of video, it was a massive, massive shock. And the initial shock was three weeks of cancellations. So, you know, we've got all these things booked in. And then when they realised, actually, we can do this by video. So lots of different video systems. They just get in touch with us and say, can we book this? But can you put them in this? Do it this way? And we're like, yeah, no problem. Face to face still continued. People think that didn't, but it did. Some of it did, just not as much. So our video side used to represent about sort of 10% of our business. And now it's kind of over 50 and I can't see that that's going to change we've had face-to-face increase massively um, in the past two months for the three months but video has stayed as a constant people are still wanting to use that you know that hybrid mix 
there's benefits isn't there and drawbacks to, to to the hybrid way of working you know like I went to an exhibition yesterday and I networked with people in real people in real life really face-to-face chatting and it was amazing absolutely amazing and I miss that the way people were chatting so much I think they all missed it too however you know you do get a lot done at home don't you and you know clinicians that have got you know loads of video appointments are interpreters they could do one or two face-to-face assignments now you can do six seven eight nine so it just means that that limited pool of resource that is available within the UK has kind of just been expanded to just make more services accessible um, and on demand as well. You know, if somebody walks into A&E, they can, they can communicate straight away. Did you ever receive any feedback about the impact of COVID on your clients' clients, like the patients? The patients, yeah. So, uh, yeah, definitely. So we've had some patients that prefer face-to-face and want to go back to face-to-face and they already have gone back to face-to-face more elderly patients prefer that so so people that are used to using smartphones and their apps and things like that are really enjoy using video we find that then the people that are using video frequently and regularly now are quite happy to stay doing that and actually like the mix so they'll have like maybe I don't know, a training session or maybe um, a long appointment that they want face-to-face for. But then maybe they have to go for like regular checkups of, I don't know, for a blood test or whatever. Then um, that you have to go for in person. But there might be just like results, of course. They don't want to go to the hospital and pay the parking and go, you know, mm-hmm. and travel. They just want to have a quick video consult about that. And we found as well that there's a lot of deaf people that are in work that were using a lot of face-to-face interpretation before. They've gone back to using face-to-face, but with the addition of video. So if they need to speak to someone now, um, rather than waiting for their interpreter to come tomorrow, they'll just use video or they'll make a phone call using video. So, yeah, so I think our clients, depending on their age and depending on their experience with technology and video, have a preference over video or face-to-face. And I also think there are certain types of appointments that we would prefer to do face to face, sort of mental health assessments, um, oncology appointments, you know, things where you need the empathy of the interpreter in the room. But but for, you know, short appointments, results, things like that, um, you know, it's video is perfect. So I think our service users have kind of enjoyed the hybrid, enjoyed the options and will continue to use them. So you've mentioned that you've scaled your team recently from 19 to 30. Has your leadership style changed with the growth of the company or is your leadership style just your leadership style? No, I have I have adapted it quite significantly and significantly in COVID as well. So prior to the team expanding, we were more family. So, you know, um, we're all in the office and then we have interpreters based around the country. But our interpreters, their communication with us was more on a daily basis about their bookings or with the bookings team, not so much with with me. We have team days where we all get together. But the contact with me and the communication with me for remote staff, you know, working across the UK was quite limited. And even when we were in the office, I'd be in an office upstairs and still that there wouldn't be as much communication as what goes on now. So since when COVID happened, I wanted to make sure, and we grew in size and we changed all our departments, I wanted to make sure we still had that friendly aspect, 
but we were more structured and everybody understood who was responsible for what, what department did what, how the departments interacted. But I also wanted everyone to get on board with the, with the growth journey. So every month or every two weeks, I do a whole company update where I talk about um, everything we are doing, what we're planning with socials, what what the financials look like, um, what tenders we're doing, how successful we've been with those, um, any new products we're launching, um, exhibitions we're attending, um, campaigns, so and accreditations, and then we kind of do happy birthdays, and so so yeah, we communicate a lot more remotely, and and we've got like um, an all company WhatsApp group now. So on there, we share information that's useful. We share funny things. We share happy birthdays. And it just feels it feels actually that the company's got much bigger and is much more dispersed. Actually, we feel more closer and communicating better. So I recently did um, a survey of all the team and regarding communication. And should I adapt or change anything now going forward? Now we're going to be moving to more of a hybrid. So some people in the office, some people at home or everyone working 50-50. And out of 10, um, our current communication um, plans, we, we scored 7.8, which I didn't think was too bad. That was sent to all the staff. And so there's some things that I'm going to change and some things I'm going to I'm going to tweak. But on the whole, I think yeah, what we're doing is working. Definitely. If people want to connect with you and find out more about Sign Solutions, where is the best place to find you guys? So, so it's www.signsolutions.uk.com. Funny ending. <laughs> and our interpreting service is uh, www.interpreterslive.co.uk. And then find me on LinkedIn. I'm quite easy to find. So it's Claire, Claire Vale. And if you want my email address, it's claire.fail at signsolutions.uk.com. I love it when people give their emails out and people give their phone numbers out. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. so much for joining us if you like what you hear I would absolutely love it if you left us an iTunes rating and five star review I know many of you give us a shout out on social media which is lovely to see you guys listening to the podcast so please come and find us on Twitter at THC Primary Care on Instagram at THC Primary Care and on LinkedIn just look for Tara Humphrey and if you're not subscribed to our newsletter please do it's really really funny you get to hear more insights more confessions some tips and tools and a roundup of our activity over the week so click on join the newsletter letter in the show notes and I will see you in the next episode.